Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G, aligning business and technology. My dad always said, our character isn't defined by what we do when things are going well, but rather how you pick yourself up after failure. When the clothing chain Mark Shale went through bankruptcy in 2009, the company's co-president was out on the street. It happened during the Great Recession and forced him to reinvent himself. How did he do it? Well, on this episode of Midwest Mavericks, we'll meet the man with the infectious laugh named Mike Baskin, whose 20-plus years in retail taught him everything he needed to know about what makes a leader great and not. Mike, welcome today. Thank you. I want to talk about the journey with Mark Shale. I want to talk about uh, what that was like. As we know, it it, it uh, had to file for bankruptcy in 2009. I want, to, I want to talk a little bit about that, your journey since then, what that what that felt like. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about little Mike Baskin growing up in <laughs> Joliet, of all places. It, it doesn't seem like Mark Shale should be spawned out of Joliet, but um, what was it like growing up in Joliet? You know, I've thought about that more as an adult, and I now know how lucky I was. Yeah, why is that? Because Joliet was a small town to us. It was 70,000 people, but it was not a suburb. The economy was revolved around U.S. Steel, uh, a munitions factory, Caterpillar, and the prison. <laughs> so, so were you involved in the prison? No. 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 Well, customers sometimes. <laughs> Before or after prison. So in retrospect, it was really cool. I mean, it was a Catholic community. And there were we were a very tiny Jewish population in the Catholic community. And I never in retrospect, ever felt ostracized or different or not welcome. Never. Not ever. Well, and that's kind of how it's supposed to be, <laughs> isn't that's, it? That's exactly my point. For example, in grade school, um, you know, we would have the school assemblies and they'd be Christmas assemblies. And I was asked to be one of the three wise men. <laughs> well, you're a Jew. I mean, why not? <laughs> well, I was proud. <laughs> and they put a fake beard on me. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, uh, but it was that kind of life. It yeah. was It was neat. My grandfather began a business there. So our business, which was at the time called Albaskin, was the main clothing store of Joliet. So that was something. He started the business in 1929, auspiciously one month before the crash. Wow. <laughs> what that? a great time. <laughs> what about that? Yeah. And it was a 600, if I remember correctly, a 600 square foot men's store. Wow. That's pretty small by today's standards. It huh? is. In the 1920s, clothes did make the man and proclaimed your acceptance and who you were. My grandfather, from the very beginning, his idea was, I want people who shop at my store to be acceptable and accepted at any country club. That was his concept, because country clubs were the idea then, too. Yeah, and I want to come back to that, because I, I was looking at some of your ads through the years, and there's a lot of country club images. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, it was a different world. Different world. So, you know, it's funny that you say it's different because, I mean, don't you think clothes shape people today? Yes, but their perceived value is very different today from what it was from the 20s, really, yeah, the I 80s. Mean, yeah, sure. I mean, you very know, different. You know, I was I was looking at some old pictures of, of golf tournaments, and the thing that I found most interesting, all of the men are wearing suits yes. and ties yes. and hats, yes. and, and the women are in dresses. And this is while they're out on the golf course watching golf yes. in, in the middle of the day in, in summertime, and they're wearing suits and ties. Yes. I mean, it's certainly a different world. So you grew up in this family of clothiers. Then your father followed in your grandfather's footsteps. You made it through the Depression. Was your father working for your grandfather? 
Uh, yes, but what happened was my grandfather got sick, and it required someone to get involved, and then he found he loved it. And, and what was his name? His name was Shale. So he was the Shale. He was the Shale. And Mark was his brother. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they're running the Albaskin Clothing Company, and when did it become Mark Shale? It became Mark Shale in 1972, and that was because Dad was, um, I could say, desperate to find a way to move out of Joliet into a bigger pond. Okay. And what happened was a man named Taubman, who developed Woodfield, which was at the time the largest mall in the world. Right. At the time. Right. I remember that. He, uh, he was interested in my father's business, and my father was interested in joining or being part of the mall, and he wanted to go in his Albaskan which was the name of the company. Right. And Taupman said, you can't because Hart Schaffner and Marx owned a chain called Baskin. So he not, he would not allow him to expand under the name Al Baskin. And he came up with the idea of Mark Shale. This philosophy that your grandfather started, what was the belief of Mark Shale? What was it founded on? The first one was country club, but it became other things, right. of course. Another one was the idea of customer service. But the real idea behind that was he wanted in a small town to be able to run into any customer and feel comfortable and proud that they were customers, shake hands and be glad so they would be treated accordingly. A third was, it was common at the time to treat merchandise as um, pheasant under glass, we called it, as not to be touched and separate from the customer. And they were under glass. Ties were under glass. Shirts often were under glass, dress shirts. What he did was he uh, opened the store up for everyone to touch and try on clothing. So you couldn't do that. It was an innovation. So this idea of making clothes more accessible, was it around taking fashion, high fashion from the rich and bringing it to more of the everyday man? He used to say, taste has no pocketbook. <laughs> and therefore, our obligation and job is to offer a range of products or clothes that could meet the needs of a middle-class person in their pocketbook, as well as someone who wanted to spend more money. So it was always broad. And then the other idea, which we brought through with Mark Shale, my brother developed this concept, was comfortably modern. Yeah. It was meant to be comfortable always, yeah. but, but modern, not right. stodgy. Right. And then a third concept was... While clothes do are the first thing you see, they're never meant to replace who you are. They're meant to uh, reflect and project who you are. They yeah. were never to be loud. Right. You know, were you in trying to curate an experience for that buyer in the store? Absolutely, yes. And my experience with your company is that you your intentionality comes through. You do that really well. Nothing. Really well. And uh, because I can imagine the customer in your company who is approaching Mother G is already nervous. My experience with your people is they're very clear on the first obligation is to listen to the customer and, uh, and understand what is being said, not just in the problem to solve, but the emotional state of mind. Yeah, yeah, the emotions are more it. important. Yeah. I yeah, think so, you. because once you get through that, you can solve the problem. Right. The problem's the easy part, frankly. I, I thought so. I wasn't yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that it's easy always, but, no, I know but it's, it's easier than the emotion, and, and I think you have to embrace that emotion. I think, you know, when, when people enter a store, similarly, I'm a type A personality. I'm here to get something done, and, yes. and, and yes. I, I'm, I'm looking to find my journey. Did you train people differently to do that? Did you yes. hire looking for those traits and skills? Well, yes. And so it's interesting what you just said because 
our understanding was, and we train people to know what you just said about you, because you are not one of a kind. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Many, many men, when they come to shop, have a mission, are not confident. It's interesting. They're confident in their work, in their position, in their profession, but not in matters of looks, taste, clothing. I believe that. <laughs> I believe that. That's why and, you bring your wife. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Because men defer to women in matters of taste. <laughs> For a reason. <laughs> Just look at my at brother one day. <laughs> my father one day. Yeah. Yes. My dad used to talk about when the farmer would come into the store. Now, this is in Joliet. You wanted to be especially welcoming and respectful because such a person feels uncomfortable. Yeah, wow. I hadn't thought of like, I mean? you know, yeah, especially a farmer in the 50s has exactly. a different persona than today. Exactly. And the first idea was to make a customer feel, yes, you belong here. You're a welcome guest and this is your home. Wow. And then everything follows. How do I treat a welcomed guest in my home? Yeah. How do I make them comfortable and feel that you want them here? You're glad yeah. they're here. So yeah. it all went through just like you described. Yeah. In my experience, most people do not see retail as a leadership laboratory, but they're wrong. And the reason it is a leadership laboratory is because you're working constantly with people you don't know to make that customer feel welcome in a very short time. I mean, it's really less than a minute, right? Yeah. And then finding as well as you can what it is they're actually looking for, and that doesn't mean necessarily what they're saying. I was taught couple of things that really stuck with me. I was taught that the owner of the customer's first responsibility is to see the company through the eyes of the customer. The owner represents the customer to the company. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because all people that are working so hard in their assigned tasks are focusing on their assigned tasks. Right. And it's easy to get that tunnel vision and not see how does it look to the customer. Absolutely. And and that's the obligation, the responsibility. So that's leadership. And then a second thing I was taught was that uh, motivation and inspiration are everything. Why are you here today? Why do you want to be here today? Retail is physically demanding. It gets hard on your feet, hard on your back. The days can be long. People can be short-tempered. Um, in our Kansas City store, a uh, there was a, a woman was buying her dress for her son's wedding. And when she came in to try on the dress, it didn't fit properly. And she said, that's okay. We have time. Why don't you work on it and I'll come back. And the tailor said, there's nothing more important to me than your wedding. I'm working on it now. I want you to stay here. You can't pay for that. Yeah. Did you hire the right tailor or did you hire a tailor with some (laughs) fundamental skills and then teach him that idea? I'd say we hired the right guy, but I'd also say that we focus very hard on culture and culture produces an expected outcome. And so he fit right into, because he was the right guy, a culture that would say, you're the customer, and your son's wedding is more important than my next assignment. Yeah, right, right. So, uh, so it's yes. High and sense yes. of service and those sort of things. But how did you bring culture forward so that your employees knew that was the right thing to do? We had a program. It was called um, Professional Sales Practices, 
And it really was a series of vignettes, stories. And the idea was to put the person in the story. You want a person to be a character in a story and see themselves in the story. And then you want them to be the hero of the story. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the concept to show salespeople, tailors, buyers, managers, the customer, and then how the customer interacted and how to be a hero in the story with the customer under various circumstances. So give me an example of one of those. Um, A customer is going to a wedding and has not bought the outfit they need for the wedding. Okay. And the wedding is tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, um, I have that exact example, and it was a funeral. But exact example. Same idea. Yeah. Same idea. And it was a Mark Shell. And so what is the response that would make it so – not only you met the customer's emotional and need and clothing Anxiety, need, right? yeah. and clothing need, but also so that the customer will talk about you in a way that you want to be talked about evermore. Okay. <laughs> and the answer is straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Would this be something that you would role play in training? Or? It, would, it would be, now what do I need to know to do it? Yeah. So, for example, in that story, there's some technical parts. What is the shape of the customer and what is the suit in this case that will fit the customer best with the least alterations? Because the least alterations are the best alterations. Right. Sure. There's less risk. Right. So that's a technical understanding, how suits fit, how the customer looks. Then it's what's the price point that the customer is comfortable in? And then you narrow it down again. Then what's the color palette? You narrow it down again. Then you provide a couple options. Then you address it. And a very important concept to us was what it is in the mirror. You know the three-way mirror in sure. a clothing yeah. store? The mirror is a very um, – it's like a sacred space. It's where a person is very vulnerable. You're looking at yourself and you always see what's wrong, what you don't like about yourself or your looks. Yeah. You always do. Yeah. So the salesperson who was great understood that, always presented to the customer an outfit that covered – or made less visible what was less appealing and accentuated what was more appealing about the person's physical looks, let's say, and psychological desire, and then would point that out. And then the alterations would make it, of course, fit properly. I mean, and that's another leadership idea, by the way, because one of the things I learned in post facto at the Lake Forest Graduate School of Management and through books, there's a great book called The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. It was fabulous. And one of his concepts was make strengths productive, make weaknesses irrelevant. And that's the idea in the clothes. Make what looks good, good. Yeah. (laughs) Make what doesn't look good, invisible, irrelevant. Right. Right. So that moment in front of the mirror was always very, very important. And you would bring the customer to the mirror. You'd make a decision. They would look at themselves. They would feel good. And then the next mission was, we have to alter this now. So let's do it. Is this something when you would hire somebody that you would walk them through these role plays? With yes. These, yeah? Yes. So, so was role playing a big piece? Yes. Role playing with the management team was a huge piece. Yeah. And videos. We had four words for Mark Shale. We want to be gracious, simple, comfortable, modern. And that allowed us to make every decision Right. Wow. What does that look like? How does the behavior that follows from it look? So, so I wouldn't so necessarily call those core values, but I think no. that's so important not. to have, you know, the, the, kind of the know. divining sort of principles of what makes your brand your brand that allows people to stay consistent 
in what you're executing. And, and that is so essential uh, to businesses. It's it's the foundation of Southwest Airlines. It's, it's, it's what your makes foundation. Mother Jason, right? Uh, because you know, Mother and consistency. G's. You used that right. word before, and you're right. I mean, that you, I know you want it so that everyone, every day who calls your company – has the same experience, and it's the right experience. Yeah, exactly. Very intentional, and that's what yes. I tell my team. It, it, it needs to be an intentional outcome. When you walk into a McDonald's, it is the same whether you are in uh, Richmond, Illinois, downtown Chicago, or in Japan. The menu might be a little different in Japan, um, but, but it is exactly the same experience, and that's very intentional. Think of Starbucks. I think it's 30,000 stores. Yeah. And you can say, by and large— the customer experience is kept high and good. Yeah. So uh, we had 110,000 customers, so we were excited. But we and we and every day was hundreds of transactions. And the idea was what we, we wanted it to always be great. So we would obsess about that, frankly. Obsess yeah, you about should. it. Yeah. And I was um, talking to Judy one day, and I said, and I was nervous about something. I can't remember, but it had to do with something occurring in one of the stores. And she said, Mike, Mike, I just want you to know that. There are eight stores. There are a couple thousand customers a day. So you can be assured that right now somebody is f***ing something up. (laughs) But but you know what? We'll figure it out and we'll make it right. (laughs) You know, you don't hit the nail on the head every single time. And sometimes you bash a finger. But, you know, I think those moments are ones that teach us how to correct. And if we're intentional about it, instead of trying to hide it, that's the in, key. In, in, in we embrace it, and then we, we don't you know jump all over somebody for making a mistake, but we, we try and understand why that mistake was made. Right. Uh, and then understand what broke down in either the training, the process, or the person's own engagement with their job and their own understanding of why they're there. Yes. You know, if you, can, if you can drill into those things, you can gain great insights. The leader's role is to look at the first cause – and understand the system in place that produces the probable right outcome and develop systems accordingly. And then the salesperson in our story is service recovery. Yes. And and I learned that from American Express. They did a study about that, and they found that the number one reason people leave the relationship with a business as purchasers is because nobody noticed them. Yeah. And the number one reason people become tight, loyal customers is service recovery, how you respond when things don't go right. It's when you develop the trust for the brand. It, it's not when everything goes well. No. You know, my dad always said, don't tell me your, your character is not defined by what you do when things are going well. Yes. It, I it's agree defined with by when the chips are down, <laughs> yes. you know, and how you react then. Are you calm? Are you deliberate? Are you fair? Are you honest when, when the chips are down? That's, I so agree with your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Described as being too big and too small, Mark Shale, like many other retailers, struggled mightily in 2008 as the Great Recession loomed. I don't remember the weather for over a year. I don't remember anything. What happened was we could feel a softening in early 2008 and we started to prepare for what we thought was a rainstorm and started reducing our costs and you know reducing costs in retail frankly is payroll so that's always hard right but we started to do so and we felt pretty comfortable and then in september remember lehman brothers Mm -hmm. file sure i don't remember the exact date but it was in september and it had an instant unbelievable impact on our business 
September's the second largest month in the retail calendar in sales. Is that right? Yeah. Second, and of course, December is the largest, at least in our business, in the clothing yeah. business. And 25% of our sales disappeared right away Ooh. in September, in the second largest month of the year. That was more than a shockwave. That was how does one cope? You can start uh, pruning inventory right. in terms of future orders, but you have what you have. Yeah, much like a tree. I mean, you know, if a tree is unhealthy, it takes many, many years to, to recover. To recover. We didn't have many years. That was, yeah, that was because what we thought we could do was withstand this shock, and then the economy would start to slowly get better. But our economy did not. So our sales declined 25%-ish, I'm doing it from memory, in September, and stayed down 25% through the end of the year, and then went down 30% to the beginning of 2009. Holy cow. And remember, there were, they were, I think the economy was disgorging like 800,000 people yes. a month or yes. something? Yes, yes. I learned a lesson from this, many lessons, but one was when you see things kind of be down 2%, 3%, for us, it was down 25 30% because you cut out what you don't have to have. Right. You have to pay for your car. You have to pay for your kid's college education. You have to pay it, for your food. And, and frankly, one thing about Mark Shale, especially if you were a customer of Mark Shale, is those clothes lasted. They're, I still have I still have sports jackets and slacks from Mark Shale hanging in my closet. You know, and 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 they were bought before two thousand nine. They were don't wear them very fashion. <laughs> Shut up, Mike. <laughs> but but that's but you can cut that to zero, and that's what people did. Yeah. And our customer was. Um, better off, there's no question, and aspiring and professional. But our customer wasn't invulnerable. They were frightened, and yeah. they had expenses. So our our part of their lives was just cut to nothing. And we couldn't, we couldn't survive that for all the reasons you said. A small boutique store can really cut costs. You know, they can get rid of every employee but just the owner. To the owner, yeah. Yeah, and the owner can, can just run the store. That's right. They may work 14, 16 hours a day. But they can do but it. But they can do it. And large retailers, large department stores can just squeeze the crap out of their vendors because the vendors have no choice. That's exactly right. And that's what my brother meant by we were big but not big enough. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. So we were stuck and we then made the decision that the only way to survive was to use Chapter 11, have the bank start uh, re- uh, recovering its lendings you know, through the closing of store and the sell-off of inventory, and while doing so, look for a buyer. And because our name had value. Yeah, sure. I mean, we had 110,000 customers. We had a, a good name, and our people were seen as great. So we were fortunate. My oldest brother found someone who was interested in the retail business and had pockets that yeah. were deep. Yeah. <laughs> so bought the business. Yeah. Bought the, what was left of the business after the filing. Yeah. And that was the Chicago stores. There was a lot to be proud of, but did that get in your way at all in this process? It absolutely, uh, and I can remember the image of a tsunami, it absolutely felt like that, washing completely over, no matter what we did. Uh, And uh, I guess I would replace the word pride with um, fear. I mean, lack of understanding of what to do. We we knew, we thought, (laughs) we knew, and we had reason to believe we knew, how to run a, a good retail business. Yeah, 80 years. But we didn't know selling a business. And we sure did know selling a business in the desperate, you know, right time right. <laughs> where uh, people were being thrown out of work and, and uh, companies were losing value right and left. So yeah. we didn't know how to do that. Yeah. That's why we were frankly fortunate that my brother did find 
through relationships someone who was interested. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's what we didn't know. Our ignorance got in the way, I guess. So, so 2009, the tsunami hits. When does Mike Baskin exit Mark Shale? July 3rd, 2009 was my last day. Yeah. I remember it. Um, it also brings back memories. I um, There's a person, a woman in the company who's taught me so much, Judy Perone. And I, as I was leaving that day, I said, come on in. I want to say goodbye. And she said, I'm not coming in there. <laughs> <laughs> Always remember that. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so that was the last day. There was shame and embarrassment. There was hope because we had found a buyer. Yeah. We still had the uh, more than 50% of the business intact with the best people. Nobody left. Yeah. Wow. I was very proud of that. Yeah. Nobody. Uh, good, great culture. Great culture. Oh, they all believed in it. Yeah. Rightly so. Retirement wasn't an option for Mike. And for the first time in over 20 years, he went job hunting. A cousin said to me after I left Mark Shale, have you ever thought about teaching? I always thought you'd be a good teacher. I didn't, I never thought of that. Uh, he was spot on though. You're but, wonderful at it. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I bring it up only because that was a sentence or two sentences. That changed how I understood the world. Yeah, you, you'd bring a lens to something. And I think that's one thing that you've been able to do for our team. You, you teach my team leadership skills on a monthly basis. We get together and then you coach them yes. uh, as well on a monthly basis. And uh, everyone loves it. Thank you. I didn't know how they would react, but I, I knew uh, for, for my organization to grow, for Mother to grow, we needed a strong foundation of leaders outside of myself and, and Philippe Schmidt, my my COO, and, and we needed to have great leaders who, who believed in the organization as much as we did. And your ability to help us learn new skills to deal with those challenges has, has been nothing short of amazing. And, and uh, you. everyone, you have such a gentle style about how you embrace problems and issues uh, and change. And I, I just have a high degree of respect for that. Thank you. First, <laughs> it is such a privilege to be able to talk to people who are in leadership positions, who feel responsible, and they do, who are well-trained, and they are. And I understand the job as like the retail mirror, to put them in front of this mirror, to have them look at themselves, and to think about who am I, and who do I want to be, and where do I want my job, my, my assignment, my responsibility to go? What do I want to accomplish? And it's the same principle. What are the strengths that I bring? What are the strengths that the people around me bring? You mentioned this mirror in that clothing store. We notice what, what we don't like about ourselves we in all that do. mirror. But don't what's we? interesting, yes, it, it, but but we don't always notice, in a, and I think and certainly in the work world, we don't see our strengths. No. Because this is this is what we do. I mean, you know, people talk about some of my strengths. I say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I, isn't everyone like that? No. Right? And we kind of think, you know, like <laughs> it's what I, but I notice what I'm not good at, you know, and, and I clearly notice those things. And, and, and I think back to that, that early principle, you mentioned, we are here to amplify those strengths yes, and make our weaknesses irrelevant. Yes. And that's really one of the core elements of leadership is to bring out the strengths in our people and to make sure that we have the strengths covered across the areas that we need. Yes. And thus that. If somebody's weak in something, maybe they have to be competent, but they don't have to be good at it. Or you hire it. Yeah, exactly. You make a team around your strengths and weaknesses that make your weaknesses irrelevant. Right, exactly. 
how did you end up at Lake Forest Graduate School of Business? You're a professor there, correct? I, I, I am, and um, and then I work at the Center for Leadership at Lake Forest as, right. uh, in their consulting program for large companies. What happened was I thought about this a lot. I think now that, that a lot of what occurs is uh, a random walk with a compass. That's how I think of it. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. That uh, I had no concept of where I was going other yeah. than the compass heading. Right. After I left the business, I started meeting people. It was wonderful, frankly, because I thought in every meeting, what a privilege. I get to talk to a person about their world and see through the window of their house into their world yeah. and try to understand what it feels like and how they think and what they love, and what irritates them. And through this series of events, I met a woman named um, Mary Clark who I didn't know. I was introduced to her through uh, Kellogg. I'd gone to school at Kellogg through a person at Kellogg. And then Mary Clark said, you know what? I teach at the Lake Forest Graduate School of Management. I'd like you to come in and present a case to the class. So I said, okay. And so I did. And then I found out I was being evaluated. I didn't know that until after. And then I became interested in joining the faculty. And then uh, and they allowed me to. And they uh, gave me a course called Leadership. And it was a wonderful course about emotional intelligence and self-development and leadership. And then another man came to me, Neil Holman, and said, I was told that you're pretty good in front of people, and we'd like you to work in a consulting assignment or a workshop with a large company. Are you interested in doing so? And I said, I don't know how to do it. He said, that's okay. We'll show you. And I, th- I was talking to one what, of your what people What a great yesterday. concept. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take somebody who's got the right skills and we'll train them on how to do a job. And, and could see something I didn't see. Yeah. I was talking to one of your people yesterday, your people, who uh, said exactly that to me about his people. He said, I can see in her an undeveloped skill, and I'm determined to bring it out. Yeah. Fascinating. Perfect. I mean, like I started clapping. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's really what the goal of leadership is, isn't it? Yes. Bring out that skill, make sure they're engaged in that job and, and, and allow them to grow into something that they didn't necessarily know was there. And then demand it. Right. You know, it's kind of like athletic coaching. I think of it as that, you know, the person who, the athletic coach that can see the running back or can see the runner or whatever, the right. cyclist, can see the talent and then shows you that you have the talent, you know, makes you believe right. it, and then demands that yeah, you that do you it. perform. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think some people misconstrue leadership with being friendly or being charismatic. You know, we talk I, about charismatic leaders. I'm not and, comfortable with that. And, and, and uh, yeah, why? Because that the focus is on the wrong participle. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the it's leader more narcissistic, is not the isn't it? Right? Yeah, it's not. It's not about the leader. No, no. The point is that is seeing the ability and talent in others make strengths productive. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm a big Mike Ditka fan. Um, okay, you know he's he's somewhat of a him. flashpoint. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but you know the thing is, and you know I've heard him speak over the years, and I think he has just a tremendous uh, perspective on leadership and in in how to build world class teams, and and it transcends whether you're talking about sports teams. I'd never thought about retail until I met you, and now I find holy cow, there's so much to be learned there, but. The great leader is not involved in what the team is actually doing, mm-hmm. right? You know, the Bears, Ditka's on the sidelines. The team's out there on the field playing. He helped 
put all those parts together and train them and demand the outcomes from them. But he wasn't out there playing. They had to execute. It was up to them. In our other world, in our other relationship in Evolve. Yes. So the, the yeah, this is this is one owners. where you're a coach, uh, a coach for peer group for for a peer group of business owners and remember we had a meeting uh based on a book written it's called the art of possibility by the conductor of the boston philharmonic yeah, orchestra remember his his comment was the conductor does not make a sound yes isn't that interesting yeah. we'll <clears throat> post that brief video on youtube on it's a our, wonderful on our, video isn't on it? our social media but yeah it's a fascinating video and and there's so much to be learned by that you know the conductor who is the leader of the orchestra is completely unheard right. and, and in many times right. ignored and not listened to. It, you don't even notice that that person uh, is there because you're listening to the music. Mike, we're drawn to a close here. Any one thought that you think you should say about leadership and your journey that we haven't talked about? What I've learned from my job is to respect greatly the idea of all change in behavior and accomplishment moves from the heart to the head to the muscle. We see the world through our heart. We understand what to notice because it produces an emotional response in us. And that's the heart. And once one sees that, acknowledges and validates that, one can move to the mind, the head, and say, now how do I do it? Yeah. What's the system and the econ economics and the capital and everything right. that is required? And then it's how do I execute, which is the muscle. And so that's my understanding of leadership, to start with the heart and recognize its importance because I've learned that if you don't acknowledge that, people get stuck. And so many times I've, I've been asked to do things that, that sounded like a logical thing to do, but I just didn't. Like, like what? Man, you're such a good salesman. Why don't you go do this? And then, yes. Okay, I see that. I, I, it didn't talk to my heart. I didn't realize this until really until we talked about how to process people through their decision to be engaged. Yes. That I really understood that engagement begins with the heart. I have to have an emotional tie to want to do something. Yes. Or want something not to happen. Yes. Because that's the force, you know? right? And 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 without that strong emotional tie, I don't have the fortitude to push through the rest of the stuff that has to happen to to, to put it to muscle, right? That's I can't say it better. Yeah, the fortitude's a good word. Yeah, I can't say it better. I really appreciate your openness and honesty, and it's is always a pleasure to be with you. Back at you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, go to motherg.com under podcasts, and you can find those old ads from Mark Shale. I hope you enjoyed the story of Mike Baskin's journey. I'm Dave Davenport, and this is Midwest Mavericks, powered by Mother G. Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G. For more information and a free security assessment, visit motherg.com.